Well, at least one good thing happened this week, which is that plugging my parents' bike shop on this very podcast has apparently done some good because we got a new customer this week. My sister. So exciting. I'm happy that my family can support your family in this nice (laughs) nepotistic way. Um... It's not nepotism. We just happen to sell quality electric bicycles. Wishbikes.co.uk. Go there if you're interested. Um, Maybe we should sell bikes to all of the Kramers, actually. I was thinking, because there's so many of you, we can make quite a profit. I think I should say you're only allowed to carry on um, pushing your parents' business if they send me a free bike. (laughs) Making this like a real podcast advert. Yeah, that would be great. Although an electric bike isn't really necessary in Amsterdam considering there are zero hills. (laughs) It's extremely flat. It's very much unnecessary. Um, But how are you? What have you been up to? I'm fine. For the first time in months, I'm recording in the house alone. My husband's gone to work. Whoa, like a physical workplace. A physical workplace. uh, Because things are kind of getting back to normal here in Amsterdam, which is really weird and nice and confronting. A lot, in other words. It is a lot. Um, What are we talking about this week? Uh, This week, we're going to be looking at the ongoing Black Lives Matter protests in Europe. I'm sure everyone is aware that there's been this incredible wave of protests that took off initially in America after the hideous killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis. But it has become an international movement. And naturally, we wanted to talk about the European angle to these protests and to have a look at Europe's own troubled past and present when it comes to institutionalised racism. So later on the show, we will be speaking to the brilliant and eloquent artist and cultural critic Quincy Gario to help us contextualise what is happening right now in Europe and the world. But first... Who's had a good week, Dominic? Trains. (laughs) Good. Yeah, trains have had a good week in Europe after 25 European countries signed a commitment to improving international rail connections. There are a few countries that didn't sign on, uh, including Malta and Cyprus, but I think that's maybe fair enough considering there are unlikely to be many international train connections to Malta or Cyprus anytime soon. They're very islandy. They are. Um, the United Kingdom is also an island and we we did a tunnel. Maybe we should just get some tunnels. Yeah, we did do a tunnel. It would be quite a long tunnel from continental Europe to Cyprus, um, but maybe they could have one between Turkey and Cyprus. Anyway, the UK woefully didn't sign on to this, but Norway and Switzerland did. Signatories committed to making international trains reach their untapped potential, urging that they become a central part of the EU's Green New Deal. They put their weight behind this nice idea that's being floated at the moment that 2021 should be the European Year of Rail. Very sexy. Very sexy. And they want to streamline ticket sales for international journeys, which is something that annoys me so much when I'm trying to book an international rail journey that crosses multiple countries. Sometimes you have to like skip from one rail site to another to get a ticket that works and... Sometimes you end up being charged millions of euros. So they're actually thinking of creating an EU-run rail version of Skyscanner, which I think is a really good idea. Great shout. They basically really want to make trains the default choice for travellers on journeys between 300 and 800 kilometres. And in fact, some of these much publicised and criticised airline bailouts uh, due to the seaward crisis have had some conditions attached to them that will force airlines to limit 
journeys that fit within that bracket. For example, Air France's bailout had this condition attached uh, that they had to limit their domestic flights. Therefore, it makes it even more necessary that the railways should be ready to step in so that they can transport people across countries and across borders. In order for train companies to be able to provide these services and move people around, they do need to survive this financial crisis. And when I say it's been a good week for trains, I should also put it in the wider context that it's been a pretty shit time for train companies generally, as it has been for most people apart from electric bike manufacturers and uh, online fitness instructors. Some of the big railway companies might actually need bailouts similar to the airline bailouts. SNCF in France have been really struggling and are currently trying to secure a big state bailout. But the signatories to this letter believe that the C-word crisis could be used to give momentum to the greening of the transport sector. Anyway, this agreement is one of those pieces of EU news that fits into the genre of like an announcement that they intend to create change rather than any particularly concrete plans for change. Of course, intentions are sometimes easier to agree on and all change starts with the intention to change. So I'm still pleased that this letter was signed um, and it looks like they are going to set some concrete goals that would need to be reached within 12 months. So we'll be keeping our eye on this and hope very much that we will all be able to visit each other very easily, carbon neutrally, and let's hope not too expensively, once international travel has become more of a thing again. Wouldn't that be nice if we could get all the way to somewhere like Greece or Estonia on a train for like less than a plane? Because you and me could already travel between each other in France and Netherlands by train, but Often for longer journeys within Europe, it can be way more expensive to do it by train. I quite like doing it, even though it's much longer. It's just a nice way to travel. Yeah, I love it. I sometimes spend time looking at that uh, great website, Man in Seat 61. Do you know it? I've heard of it. It's like a train nerd website, isn't it? Sorry, is that insulting? No, nerds are cool. And uh, it, it gives you loads of different options to like do a journey from... Amsterdam to Athens and suggest the different routes and how much it would cost and how long it would take. Has this been one of your COVID uh, fantasy activities, just looking at train journeys that you can't take? Perhaps. Oh, but guess what? As of today, Katie, we could visit each other again on the Talis because they've reopened the line from Paris to Amsterdam. Yay! And not hug when we see each other. Maybe that's enough train news, but there is also more good train news. Hit me. Uh, there was actually an agreement made between two companies in Italy to retrofit some of their trains to become hydrogen-powered trains. Mm. And um, yeah, I accidentally fell into this rabbit hole on the internet finding out about hydrogen-powered trains. And they're having a bit of a moment right now with routes cropping up in Germany, the UK and the Netherlands. And now Italy is going to get some hydrogen trains too, which is exciting and a little bit terrifying because hydrogen is really flammable. But they think they found a way to deal with that and if they find a way to also produce the hydrogen in a sustainable way at bigger scale which they're working on now it could end up being a really good way of powering this method of transport didn't one of our patreon supporters post an article about uh, an italian pasta factory that was producing its own hydrogen power yeah that was that really cool new york times article wasn't it we'll post that it was fun who's had a bad week katie 
Uh, it's been a bad week for the two Russian diplomats who've been kicked out of the Czech Republic in a row over a poisoned suitcase. I'm really glad you're here to explain this story because I kind of skim read the article and didn't understand what was going on. Okay, so quick disclaimer. There do seem to be more questions than answers at the moment, but I still think it's interesting enough to, to merit bad week this week. I'll explain everything that I can explain right now. Um, let me take you back to April when the mayor of Prague, Stenek Harib, announced that he was under police protection, reportedly because of some kind of Russian plot to kill him and two other Czech politicians, which was pretty scary. And there were a lot of reports in the Czech media at the time that a Russian diplomat had brought a suitcase full of ricin, this highly toxic poison, into the country, and that was going to be used in the assassinations. At the time, it didn't seem 100% crazy that Russian agents would be trying to target Czech politicians because the two countries haven't really been getting on uh, that well recently for a couple of reasons. Firstly, Prague City Hall had really pissed off the Russians by renaming the square outside the Russian embassy after Boris Nemtsov, you know, the dissident politician who got shot dead outside the Kremlin in 2015. Mm. And they'd further pissed off Russia by taking down this statue of a Russian general Ivan Konev, who was seen as a hero by Russia, but a lot of Czechs see him as like the architect of Czech suppression under communism. And he'd helped to build the Berlin Wall and suppress the Hungarian uprising against the Soviet Union. So it was a controversial statue, which I guess is quite fitting in a, a week when we're talking a lot about controversial statues. Wouldn't it be quite an extreme escalation, though, to poison a foreign politician? I mean, I know there's lots of evidence that Russia have poisoned ex-Russian agents who have defected. But Mm. I don't think there's much evidence that they've ever poisoned foreign politicians, have they? Yeah, it does seem like it would have really indicated like an escalation of Russia's general craziness, especially with these things, which, you know, might have been annoying, but aren't really sort of murderable offences, in my opinion, anyway. Um, But yeah, people were taking this really seriously. The district mayor who brought the statue down and along with the sort of overall mayor of Prague, he was one of the politicians who was supposedly being targeted in this assassination plot. He went into hiding over this. He was like terrified for his life. But as you say, Dominic, there were lots of people who were kind of sceptical over whether this could really be the case. And now it seems that the sceptics were on the money because the Czech president, Andrei Babish, came out this week and said, yeah, it seems like there wasn't a suitcase plot and this whole thing was fabricated as some kind of internal feud between staff at the Russian embassy and one of them sent false information to the Czech intelligence agency warning that there was an attack coming, but it was all made up. And we're going to kick out two Russian diplomats because this is all really unacceptable. I just have so many questions. I mean, like, primarily, what kind of an argument between diplomats would result in one of them phoning in fake information about a suitcase full of rice in? Yeah. Can that really be the story? That It, it does sound particularly strange. <laughs> but I guess it's not... It's maybe less far-fetched than the idea that they would actually be poisoning a Czech mayor with rice in. There are some other theories, like maybe the Russians planted the story about the poison because they wanted to scare the Czechs. It all seems very weird. So the diplomat who was accused of having the poisonous suitcase, a guy called Andrei Konchakov, um, he'd also said at the time that it was complete rubbish and there was no ricin in the suitcase, only, and I quote, disinfectant and sweets, which in itself is like very weird. Um, and valuable stuff right now, disinfectant. So Very true. And sweets always welcome. I don't know. This just feels like one of those things where Russia often works in like a very disjointed way in which one branch of an agency or even like a particular agent will do something that completely contradicts 
what their colleagues are doing. So who knows? But uh, yeah, in theory, the case of the poisonous suitcase has now been put to bed. And Andrei Kodjakov, the guy with the suitcase, he's one of the diplomats who's been kicked out over this. He used to be head of the Russian Centre for Science and Culture in Prague, and his deputy is being sent home along with him. Russia has expressed annoyance at the expulsions, but it hasn't denied that one of its diplomats made up this whole story. So in conclusion, dunno, we may never have more answers, but if there are any further developments, we will keep you updated. Well, thank you for clearing that up for me, or at least kind of partly clearing that up for me. Um, Clear as mud. You know, I I have learned how to pronounce Andre in Czech properly. Oh, yeah. You have to, when you're doing the rolled R, you have to keep your teeth closed. So, it's really fun to do. Andre. How long does the roll have to be? Don't ask me difficult questions, okay? (laughs) Seven seconds minimum. We've got some lovely Patreon supporters to thank once again this week. Thank you, John Batier, Spencer and Jude Dinnerly. Thank you so much for deciding to give us a monthly donation. We really appreciate it. If you would like to join them and have access to our Facebook Patreon group, where there's been really interesting discussions this week about the Black Lives Matter protests in Europe, Mm. then head to patreon.com forward slash Europeans podcast. And if you don't have any spare cash, and we totally understand if you don't, there are a couple of other things you can do. You can write a review on Apple Podcasts or on your next Zoom call, you can tell everyone there to listen to this podcast, which I think would be very helpful and definitely won't make you look crazy. Um, Maybe they could just tweet about us. Do that. That's a great plan. Unless you've been living under a rock, you will have noticed that there have been quite a few protests against racism around Europe this week. Everywhere from Italy to Denmark and Hungary. Here's what the Amsterdam protests sounded like. Oh, and it's been such a controversial protest in Amsterdam because the mayor of Amsterdam was there and people are calling for her to lose her job. What, because she went? Yeah, and I'm really sad that it's become just about the fact that she was there and the fact that she didn't shut it down. Anyway, sorry, carry on. Uh, Yeah, so these protests have been a little bit different in every country in Europe. This is, after all, a very diverse continent and the contexts are a little bit different everywhere. So in France, where I live normally, uh, the protests were mostly about the problem of police violence in France. In some countries like Italy, people have been calling for better rights for immigrants. And in other countries like Britain and Belgium, there's been a lot of focus on attacking statues of historic racists like King Leopold II in Belgium and the British slave trader Edward Colston. We wanted to spend some time this week unpicking what makes these protests different from the ones in America. And Quincy Garrio seemed to be the perfect person to to do that. Can you tell us a little bit about who he is, Dominic? Yeah, Quincy uh, is an artist and a cultural critic, and he is most famous in the Netherlands for his project Zwarte Piet is Racisme, or Black Piet is Racism. It's a statement which maybe doesn't sound too controversial to people in other parts of Europe, because Black Piet, the tradition which we've talked about before, involves predominantly white people putting black paint on their face. I would call that blackface. But it was an incredibly controversial statement when he started this project in 2011. And he was actually arrested at a protest where he wore this T-shirt. 
It was a really traumatic event for him. It had a lot of media coverage and he got a lot of support from a lot of people and became this kind of symbol of the movement. A lot has changed since then. And Quincy does a lot of other things as well. He isn't just the protest against Black Pete. He speaks really brilliantly on lots of topics. So we wanted to call him to talk about this incredible international movement that has been dominating the headlines for the last few weeks. How have the last weeks been for you? How have you felt watching what's happening in the world? There's this mix between profound sadness and anger and disappointment in a certain sense as well. Because, I mean, we should not be having these conversations still. People should not have to risk their health to protest police violence. They should not be out in the street during a pandemic in which we know that black and brown people are most affected, people of color are most affected because of existing inequalities in healthcare. So it's like, okay, this is necessary, and yet it's this weird situation where you know that if people don't speak up and say something, the institutions that reproduce and produce this violence will say, see, no one's saying anything about it, we're doing okay. And also, I mean, as a survivor of police brutality, it's also weird because every time you see one of those videos, it makes you think like, shit, that could have been me, which is also a weird situation to be in. Watching the protests on both sides of the Atlantic, do the protests in Europe feel different from the protests in America in some way? Yeah, yeah. I mean, in Europe, what, what happens is... I've been missing protests against Frontex, which is leaving people drowned in the Mediterranean. I'm missing protests against racism, police brutality within Europe itself that have have become immense like this. And I'm also, in a certain sense, seeing a lot of hypocrisy because some of these cities in which protests are being organized and which hundreds of thousands of people are stepping out, There is rampant anti-black racism, and that's never actually seen as legitimate concern to be taken care of. So maybe I'm being a bit more cynical now than I should be, but it seems as if the U.S. protests are used as a way to once again offset Europe as more developed, as better than the U.S., while racism in the U.S. was imported from Europe. So... The ideas that have reigned there actually come from here. So just to follow up on that, does it feel like in a lot of cities, people are protesting about George Floyd in America rather than local problems with racism? Because in France, at least, the protests do feel local. Like it feels like the focus has really been on racist police violence in France. Yeah. But maybe it doesn't feel like that everywhere. No. Not from what I've seen, no. But I mean, France also has its own particular history of protest, and that's amazing to see. But I mean, in Brussels, there was a protest, and it turned into an All Lives Matter protest. There was a protest in Tilburg, where a couple of people stood on stage and were talking about how difficult it was for them as white people to see the violence against black people. And you're like, okay, thank you, but this might not be the place or time. But then again, I mean, I haven't organized any of the protests either. I haven't been involved in the in the organizing. I've been asked 
to appear at two of them and I've declined both times. Do you mind me asking why you have declined appearing at the protests? Is it because of COVID? It's a combination of things. One, COVID. And I think a lot of people also use past names, if, if I can call myself that, to obscure the work that's being done by the newer generation. I didn't feel like it was my place. Talking about your legacy as an activist and as an artist, one of your most famous works is Zwartepiet is Racisme, or Black Peter's Racism. And uh, yeah, it's a piece that brought opposition to this Dutch tradition back into the mainstream. And there was movement this week, maybe. Uh, the Dutch Prime Minister didn't quite say Zwartepiet is Racisme, but he did say that his views on the matter have shifted what did you think about his statement? Um, deep sigh. Because, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's been interesting to see him squirm in a certain sense after seeing how many thousands of people have, have stood up against racism. I mean, 10,000 in Amsterdam, about 10,000 in Rotterdam, Groningen, Eindhoven, Arnhem, Nijmegen, Utrecht, all these places, and you're seeing the pictures. So it seems more as if he was scared into saying something than he actually meant it. Because the very next day, he said, like, no, I will not call it racist. And he also said that he does not want to talk about institutional racism because that could confuse people because they don't understand the language. So he's more of this Teflon type of politician where he does a whole bunch of stuff, says a whole bunch of things, and at the end of the day, it's still about furthering his own agenda, which is anti-immigration, which is xenophobic, which is about the destruction of the welfare state. And so I'm seeing this and I'm thinking, okay, so what exactly is a policy that you want to enact? And he says there is no policy to enact. So I'm like, okay... Thank you for this empty gesture. And now let's get on with the work. It's been strange living in the Netherlands. Um, I mean, the UK isn't exactly great at dealing with its colonial legacy. But I, I do think there's something particularly bad in the Netherlands about the way that people deal with the pretty horrible colonial history. And people almost are inclined to be nostalgic about former colonies here in the Netherlands. Do you think it's a problem of education? Hmm. Is colonialism being taught in schools here? As far as I've understood, there are bits and pieces. And right now there's a whole scale overhaul being done on the canon that kids need to learn at the end of, of secondary school. The thing as well is we, we talk about um, the colonial past while it's actually colonial present. At the moment, for example, the pandemic and the way how it's affected the Netherlands isn't just about the European Netherlands, but also the Caribbean Netherlands, the islands in the Caribbean that are still being occupied by the Dutch. And instead of getting support, financial economic support to tackle the pandemic, they had to ask for loans from this government. And those loans were only given if they also were agreeing to austerity measures. Now, these islands have already been hit with austerity through the IMF in the 1990s, beginning of the 2000s, and now again they're being hit with austerity. 
to deal with the pandemic that was brought in through tourists who came to the island. And tourists came in because the local economy was completely decimated and changed in the 1950s for this neoliberal tourist paradise type of scene. The colonial past is not being taught because the colonial present is still being exalted as the way how things should be. Um, we have never moved on from the colonial period. We're still a colonial power. I was reading a piece that was recommended by one of our listeners, actually, by the writer Gary Young in the New York Review of Books. And he was basically arguing that we find it easier in some European countries to think of America as more racist than we are because we committed a lot of our historic racial crimes overseas in our colonies, whereas in America that racism happened internally. And so it's easier for Europeans or at least Europeans from countries with a colonial past to just never really think about this stuff. Do you agree with that? Partly. I mean, looking around us, we see the effects of, of colonialism and slavery, right? The buildings that have been here since the 17th, 18th century, the wealth that was created, the streets that we have, the financial institutions that we have, they have been around because of colonialism and racism. The problem is we haven't identified them as such. We haven't identified the docking bays and the warehouses that have still remained since that time as part of that history. So the violence is amongst us. We just don't have the glasses to see it. I mean, you have that movie by, I think it's Wes Craven, the movie with the wrestler Roddy Piper. Uh, they're amongst us, I think. And whenever he puts on the glasses, he can see like the monsters and the aliens. And when he takes them off, he can't see them. I think we're missing the glasses because the monstrosity is all around us. Do you have any feeling of optimism that the world seems to be kind of waking up at the moment to some of this monstrosity? Definitely. I mean, I can talk all this stuff about monstrosity, and yet at the same time, I'm thinking this defiance of the system is hope in and of itself. People are finding each other, people are organizing, people are thinking about what the future should entail. And people are also thinking like, okay, this is the future that we want. What is the present that we want? How do we change right now? And I think that is, is really, really helpful. And that's also a type of, of impetus to keep on walking with your head held high and smiling and thinking, you know what? This might be the moment in time in which we can change everything that was supposedly set in stone. I'm going to do that tasteless thing where I plug previous episodes of this podcast. But it's because they're great episodes. If you are interested in blackness in Europe as a topic, you might want to check out the episode Notes on Black Europe from July the 2nd last year. It was an interview with the writer Johnny Pitts about his book Afropean, which I think just won a fancy prize, didn't it? Yeah, he won the Jalak Prize for this book. So everyone should go and read it. And maybe that should be our first piece of isolation inspiration. Go and buy Afropean. Do it. That's a great read for this week. I'm suggesting two other episodes from our back catalogue. Uh, the episode from February 19th this year, Euro Africa, which was an interview with the brilliant Kenyan writer and cartoonist Patrick Kathara about Europe's colonial legacy. And in a similar vein, November 26th last year, Europe's colonial past and present, where we talked about household objects that carry some kind of colonial past with them. So check them out. I've got a short happy ending for you this week. Um, I just wanted to share with everyone that as of 
midnight on Wednesday the 10th of June, which is the day this podcast comes out, the UK will have gone two months without using any coal power for the electricity board. This is pretty amazing considering only a decade ago, 40% of the UK's electricity was provided by the burning of coal. Anyway, I've talked about coal quite a lot recently, so I won't bore everyone about it again. But I just thought that people could do with hearing about something that has progressed positively in recent history this week. So there you go. There's your happy ending, short and sweet. Have you got any isolation inspiration this week, Katie? Um, I watched a lovely Japanese anime film this week called Whisper of the Heart, which, yeah, 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 isn't European before you say it. But, and I've tried to make this argument before on the podcast, these animated films from Studio Ghibli often seem to be set in some kind of fictional European town. So it is kind of a European recommendation. I think that's totally fine. This one actually isn't set in a European town. It's about a Japanese teenager trying to figure out who she is. But the love interest leaves to go and study in Italy to become a violin maker. So it's very European. Oh, how romantic. It's just a lovely film and not much happens in it, which felt like a really good antidote to all the news this week. That does sound like a good idea. I've also actually not been listening to many podcasts this week and just been listening to lots of music instead by yeah a lot of my favourite black artists. I realise I basically only listen to black artists. But I did listen to one podcast, Wind of Change, uh, which I think you've been listening to as well, Katie. It asks the question, did the CIA write the song Wind of Change by the German band The Scorpions in order to subtly influence the political movements of the time just before the uh, Berlin Wall fell. I haven't actually got around to starting it yet. Is it any good? Oh, you haven't? I find it really gripping. It's not finished yet, but um, yeah, I'm really enjoying it. Sweet. It's one of those bingeable podcasts, you know, like the old serial. Like in the olden days. That's going straight to the uh, straight to the top of my to-do list. Um, we will be back next week to talk about food in communist Bulgaria, obviously. In the meantime, come and hang out with us on the hellish website known as twitter.com. We're there at Europeans Pod. Or you could do Instagram, much more relaxing, at Europeans Podcast. And we're on Facebook under the Europeans Podcast. By the time we've recorded next week, I might have actually done a rehearsal in real life. So I'll probably need <gasps> calming down. I'm a bit scared about it, but uh, it should be really nice as well to sing with some other people in a room very spaced out in an enormous room. Do you have to wear a mask when you're singing? Uh, I don't know, actually, what the decision is about that. We do have to be spaced many, many metres apart from each other. And the rehearsals are going to be very short. And they've worked out, like, the direction of the airflow. So wow. no one's sitting, like, downstream of anyone else's air for too long. Oh, well, fingers crossed it goes OK. We're rooting for you, DK. Thanks. Obviously, I'm the one who's really suffering the most from this crisis. No, but singing has become um, like an extremist sport during the pandemic. It has. And I'm kind of surprised that we're already going to be able to start singing in a room together with other people. But only time will tell. Well, you better get practicing then. Off you go. Okay, bye. Bye.